Grab your Bible, if you will. Let's, let's turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to jump into the message today. Just a little bit of a warning today. I was talking to a friend of mine in between services. It's page 749, by the way, in here. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine in between services. He said, this service was a little bit weird, which I hear that a lot, by the way. I, 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 I think I teach in a weird way. But, but the idea was this is a little more teaching-oriented but then he said, towards the end, you landed the, you landed the plane. You, you got back to kind of a normal groove for you. And I think that probably is a fair assessment. So this first part of the message is a little more um, educational oriented, but then there's some real clear applications at the end. So don't, don't let me lose you along the way. Acts chapter 8, page 749. While you're turning to that, let me show you a couple of pictures from a, the Israel trip Amy and I took uh, a few months ago. This is not only to help lead into the sermon, but it's also a plug for you to go to Israel because I think that'd be really... Uh, fun for you. This is a picture of Caesarea. It's a modern day picture of Caesarea. You'll notice it's right on the Mediterranean Sea, which is beautiful. Amy and I traveled there back in December. And the city was built by Herod the Great as a way to honor Caesar. That's why it's called Caesarea. It means Caesar city. And so that city was, was created during Herod's reign, not long before the time of Jesus. It's a brand new city during the time of Jesus. And it was built as an honor to Caesar on the Mediterranean coast. It had this huge port, one of the biggest ports in the ancient world that Herod constructed. It's not an active port now, but you can still see exactly where it was. And, and this is a picture I took of the site of the ancient palace. Uh, you can see it got, went out into the water. This is the foundation of the palace. There's actually a pool there they had with fresh water there off the sea. And the, the palace was there. Uh, Herod would have lived in this palace in Caesarea. In the book of Acts, later in the book of Acts, Felix and Festus were governors. Paul was tried before Felix and Festus. That would have been at this location where Paul was at. Um, if you zoom in to this picture, you can see the ancient tile work that still survives. I took that picture of the ancient tile. Uh, you know, modern day construction lasts about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, that tile was 2,000 years old, which is kind of fun uh, that it's still surviving and you can still see it. And Pilate would have also lived in that in that. Uh, mansion, that, that site. Pilate was the governor, you may know, that, that pronounced Jesus' death penalty. Uh, a lot of historians said that we weren't even sure maybe Pilate was just made, a made-up character. And then we found an ancient stone from that time. This is the picture of the stone that Amy and I saw with Pilate's name on it. Um, so we know Pilate was a real guy in a real time, and he would have lived at that site also there in Caesarea. And the centerpiece of the city is an amphitheater that, that Herod built. We, we, that's a picture I took. About 4,000 people sit, can sit in that amphitheater. Uh, obviously, like the, the handrails and things are, are new, they've added, but otherwise, it's, it's the ancient, what it would have looked like. And in the ancient world, if you had an amphitheater, that meant you were a city. Like, before you had an amphitheater, you were just like some small village or something. But if you have an amphitheater, now you're on the map. Now we can have meetings. Now we can have government business and, and forums and those kind of things. And so this was kind of a big deal. And, and even though it's very similar to what it looked like in those days, back in the day, it would have had large white sails that covered, they have some descriptions from historical writings, large white sails that would have covered the outside ring uh, of the place to co to shade the people, uh, maybe a little bit like Geodis Park in Nashville. You know the sails that kind of go out over the edge, a sun sail maybe uh, the people shade sail that people put in their backyard. These sails would have covered all the seats, uh, so people could have sat and been out of the sun, out of the the weather and things. All right, so that's the amphitheater accessory. We'll get back to that in just a minute. I had you turn to chapter eight one Acts eight one in your Bibles. Uh, let me bring you up to speed if you've not been with us for this series or you're not familiar with this section of Acts. 
Uh, prior to chapter 8, the church had been surging and growing. They said, you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And then as that changes, it gets into Acts chapter 6, and we, we find out about Stephen. Stephen was a leader in the church, and he was arrested for his faith. And he, and he summarized in Acts chapter 7 the whole Hebrew scriptures. Like if you're not used to the Bible, if you don't know a lot about the Bible, and you, especially the Old Testament, it has a lot of weird stuff you don't know about the Old Testament. Acts chapter 7, in just a couple of minutes, you can get a whole summary, cliff notes, if you will, of the Old Testament from Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And so he presents this presentation to the crowd, and they got so upset that they killed him for it. They threw stones at him until he died. And Acts 7 ends with Paul, later be the Apostle Paul, overseeing his death and approving of his death. And then we get into Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now, a little... In, not so insignificant trivia is the connection between Acts 8.1 and Acts 1.8. We'll get to that in just a second. Acts 8.1 says, On that day, the day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Now, I want you to notice the connection between Acts 8.1 and Acts 1.8, because they're, they're really kind of mirror images of each other. Acts 1.8 says, Jesus tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But they didn't go and do what Jesus said and tell them about him in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They just stayed in Jerusalem. They were having a great time in Jerusalem. All their friends were in Jerusalem. The church was in Jerusalem. They were seeing people healed and, and cleansed, lives changed, people taught, children raised up in the Lord. All that was happening in Jerusalem. Why would you want to leave? And so they didn't obey God. They didn't leave the comfort of Jerusalem to go to Judea and Samaria. And yet God was still concerned about the rest of the world, not just Jerusalem. So God says, I've got to get you out. You're not going to listen to me. I've got to kind of force you out. And persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And finally, they scatter to the, to the four winds. Now, did God cause that persecution? We don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Did he allow it? He, he certainly allowed it. And we know he planned to use it. Because every time when, when it happened, he used that to make a difference in, in the world, to make a difference in the church. I want you to consider what that must have been like to be in the church in Acts chapter 8. You know, prior to this, you'd see these mass baptism services. Everything was out in public in the temple courts. But now starting in Acts 8, it was different. People were being tortured for their faith. People were being arrested for their faith. Everyone was scattered out throughout the region, all off in pockets by themselves. What do you think church was like in those days? Probably secretive. A little bit of hiding. It was leaderless. Well, not necessarily leaderless. New leaders would have had to arise because all the, the main leaders were all in Jerusalem. So as they go out to these other towns and cities, they would have had to raise up new leaders. People take on ownership of their faith and begin to lead out others. Uh, probably fearful. It's a very scary time to be in the church. I think it's so hard for us to imagine because we've never lived like that. We live in free and prosperous America where we're free to, to come and gather. No one went through checkpoints to get to this building. You didn't have to sneak around to pretend you were doing something else. You just drove out in public and, and came to the church and walked in and were singing out loud and having a big gathering. 
You know, the closest we've probably ever come in our lifetime is when uh, COVID caused churches to have to lock down for a, a short period. And some people really struggled because they didn't have a leader right there. Some people really struggled because they were scared and, and afraid and leaderless. But this group faced far more than that. And they handled the struggle so differently. Look at verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. It says, Those who had been scattered preached the word of God wherever they went. So as they were scattered out from the city, they told their friends and neighbors and, and fellow people they met why they were leaving and, and who this Jesus guy was. Now, I'm, I'm sure they didn't enjoy the struggle. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand it. They didn't enjoy it. It wasn't like they were saying, oh, that's so great, persecute us. They hated it. They were afraid of it. But they embraced it. This group didn't turn away from God and struggle. They turned toward God and struggle. And if you're only going to catch one thing I say all day, it's catch that. This group didn't turn away from God in the struggle. They turned towards God in the struggle. And because he, they did that, God did amazing things in them and through them that changed literally thousands of lives. Literally changed our life, as I'll show you in just a minute. I titled the message Struggle, not because I assume that in, our, you know, in the next couple of months we're going to all be forced to leave Spring Hill and flee to Hohenwald or something. That's probably not going to happen quite like that. But I named it Struggle because we all face struggle. Your struggle may look different than my struggle, may look different than your struggle, but we all face struggle. And when we face struggle, we have precisely the same decision that they had. Are we going to embrace the struggle and turn towards God? Are we going to reject the struggle and turn away? And what we decide in that moment will tell us more about our faith than all the sunny days combined put together. What do you do in struggle? You know, we don't have all of their stories. If you look in the, the, the book of uh, Acts, it said there was, you know, by the time we get to Acts 8, maybe 15, 20,000 people who were part of this church, and they all scattered. And we don't have all their stories. It'd be cool if we did. It'd be fun to meet them one day in heaven and interview them and find out about how they handled the struggle. But we have a few people's story. Uh, we won't be able to cover all the stories. In fact, we're skipping over some even today. If you've not read along with us, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts along with us. We have two more weeks after today in the series. If you read two chapters a day, you'll finish the series the same time we finish the series in the book of Acts. We'd encourage you to do that. Um, because we have all kinds of great stories in here we won't have time to cover. We're going to focus on Peter today. Because his story is pretty remarkable. And, and so to help us keep track of Peter and where he's going, I've got a map I'm going to put up on the screen here. You'll see that. And, and Peter initially in this story is in Jerusalem. So that's a, this is a broad map, but Peter's basically at that spot in Jerusalem along with the other apostles. When everyone's scattered, we read that a minute ago, they're scattered throughout the whole region. Uh, if, if Peter and the others stay in Jerusalem. If you have your Bible there in Acts chapter 8, Turn over to Acts chapter 9. We're going to skip down to verse 32. Because Peter wants to go visit all of his congregation, which is now out throughout the countryside. They've all, they've all left for fear. So Acts 9.32 on the next page says, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. They'd been scattered there. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. 
So Peter's gone from Jerusalem now to Lydda, a short distance away, to see those who had been scattered there. He meets Aeneas, who's been bedridden for eight years, and he heals him on the spot. Now, Lydda wasn't a great big city. It was a commercial place, so it had some commercial centers, but it wasn't a great big city. But the reason it's significant, and I think it's why Luke mentions it here, is that Lydda was kind of on a crossroads. There was a north and south uh, highway, travel journey place that went from Egypt in the south up to Syria in the north. And then there was also a highway that went from Joppa on the coast over to Jerusalem. And so Lydda was kind of at that crossroads between those two highways. So when something happened in Lydda, the news spread pretty quickly because not people didn't just live there, but they traveled through there often. And so words about Peter traveled extensively, very quickly. Look at verse 36. It says, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Middle school, by the way, was tough on Tabitha. That's an unfortunate name if if people called you Dorcas. And, and so Lydia, Tabitha was called Dorcas, and she was always doing good and helping the poor. About the time she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room, and Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, because the word had spread, they sent two men at once and urged Peter, Peter, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. I love, by the way, how Peter's not drawing attention to himself here. I think sometimes we confuse all that today, but just look at this. Peter sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees, and he prayed just to God. He turned toward the dead woman and he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So it spread all the way over the region because it was on this crossroads. Peter embraced the struggle in Jerusalem, and because he didn't turn away from God in Jerusalem, but turned towards him, people all over Lydda came to faith in Christ. People all over Joppa came to faith in Christ. People on the highways throughout the known region came to faith in Christ. And Tabitha and Aeneas and their families would never be the same again. Look at Acts chapter 10. Verse 1 says, At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Caesarea, by the way, is the city I told you about that Amy and I went to a month or so ago, a couple months ago. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at the angel in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was his attendant. He told them everything that had happened and sent them on to Joppa. So this is, this is cool to me. Now you have Peter who's in Joppa. And God calls him to help Cornelius because he sees Cornelius all the way up in Caesarea. Now, that's not a long, long distance away, but those are worlds away in terms of feel. Joppa was a religious center. Joppa was a Jewish town. 
Caesarea is a new town established by Herod, the wicked dictator, and Caesarea was very much a Roman city. Caesarea was a pagan city full of sin and debauchery, but yet there in the middle of Caesarea, God sees Cornelius in Caesar City. And he has Cornelius send for Peter, a religious man in a religious city 40 miles away in Joppa. And they get there for Peter the next day, right as he's having a vision about a sheet being lowered down. And on the sheet, you can read it later in Acts chapter 10, the sheet being lowered down has all kinds of unclean animals on it, animals that don't fit the kosher diet. And the the vision tells Peter, get up and kill and eat. Like, sick him, Peter. Go after those animals. You can have all they want. He's like, I'll never do it. It's, it's impure. And the sheet went up again. Then it came down a second time. It came down a third time. This white sheet being lowered with all these unclean animals on it. And, and God's saying, Peter, those are for you now. Get up and, and go after them. Now, the timing of all this is really cool to me. I mean, they make a 40-mile journey. It takes over a day to get there. And yet God gives Peter a vision right as they're arriving. The timing is very clear in Scripture. is very unique. And then they go back to Caesarea, back to Caesar City, a town that a good Jewish folk would never go to. I mean, it's very likely that in those days, a phrase would have been, what happens in Caesar City stays in Caesar City. Like, it's a rough place, full of a lot of sin, a lot of debauchery. And he doesn't just go to Caesar City. He doesn't just go to see a Roman there. He goes to see a Roman soldier. They're the worst. And not just any Roman soldier, but a leader of Roman soldiers. I mean, this is, this is about as anti-Jewish as you get, about as anti-churchy as you get. He's going to a leader of the Roman legion in a pagan city of Caesarea. And he's going to go see a man that would have been considered unholy to be around. And yet God commanded Peter to do it because he saw Cornelius. He saw his faith. He saw his searching and his longing. And God wanted to make an impact in his life. So he traveled to Caesar City, back to this den of iniquities. And what's one of the first things they would have seen as they got into the city? They would have seen the theater, possibly with thousands of unclean Romans in it, with the white sails over top, just like in Peter's dream covering this unholy place. And God's saying to Peter, these are now for you. We want you to pursue these people just like you're pursuing the unkosher food. He goes to Cornelius' house. Uh, There's a large crowd there, which if I'm Cornelius and, and God sends an angel to tell me he'll get some preacher, I'd have a large crowd for him when he got back too. So he has a whole congregation there. And Peter begins to preach to this crowd about the gospel and about Jesus and what he did. And when he shares that, those passages, those words, look at verse 44 of Acts 10, the next page. This will be our last section. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who, who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had now been poured out even on the Gentiles. That's all of us, by the way. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water, for they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is really profound. I mean, first, consider the imagery of the sheet. 
God gives Peter an imagery of this white sheet with unclean things all inside of it. And then Peter goes to Caesarea, this unclean city, and he walks probably past the amphitheater with all that white sheet and all those unclean people in it. And God's saying, now these are for you, Peter. The world has expanded. I want you to to reach these people as well. Secondly, it's cool that the gospel in Acts chapter 10 becomes available to all the non-Jews. The door is open now for us. If it hadn't been for Acts 10, we wouldn't have been saved. If it hadn't been for Acts 10, we couldn't have eaten bacon. I mean, these are two big things in my life that if it hadn't been for Acts 10, it wouldn't have been true. But I want you to go bigger than that. I want you to trace the roots of what happened in Caesarea, Caesar's city, with what had happened earlier in Jerusalem. Because Peter would have never gone to Caesarea if he hadn't have been first in Joppa. And he never would have gone to Joppa had he not first been in Lydda. And he never would have gone to Lydda had he not faced persecution in Jerusalem. So if the struggle hadn't come, if Peter hadn't turned to God in the struggle, think of all the people that would have been lost. And Peter didn't know that when he faced the struggle. And you don't know that when you face the struggle either. I mean, consider it. Peter in Jerusalem didn't know, okay, if I embrace God, God's going to send me to Lydda and then to Joppa, and I'm going to meet Aeneas, and then I'm going to meet Tabitha, and then I'm going to meet Cornelius. He didn't know any of that. He just turned towards God in the struggle, and God led him through the struggle to make a great impact in their life. But Peter didn't know that at the start, and you don't know that at the start. I mean, some of you right now are in the midst of deep struggle. And if you could look a few months or a few years in the head, in the lead, you'd say, oh, okay, God's going to use this to lead to that and lead to this. You would have it all figured out and you'd say, you know what? I can trust that plan. But God didn't give you the plan yet. He just gave you the first step and you've got to trust that he's going to have a plan, that he's going to lead you through, that whether he caused the struggle or not, he's going to embrace it and he's going to use it to make an impact in you and through you. But you don't know all the details in Jerusalem. You don't know those till later. Does God cause the struggle in our life? Sometimes. The Bible says sometimes God brings it on as, as discipline. Does God allow the struggle? Other times he disallows it. He doesn't cause it. Does God use the struggle? Always. Always. He never wastes a struggle. If we turn to him, if we stay close to him, if we cling to him amidst the struggle. One of the best ways for you to grow in your faith is to change the way you view and embrace struggle. You know, sometimes the struggles you face in your life, the struggles I face in my life, are directly caused by God. The Bible is very clear. Sometimes God brings struggle into your life. Embrace it. Sometimes the struggles we face are not caused by God, but they're allowed by him. Embrace them as well. Turn to God in the middle of the struggles. Because God always uses the struggle. God always comforts us in the struggle. God always grieves with us as we face the struggle. And if we'll allow him, he'll birth in us a vision to change the world and give your struggle meaning and purpose that you'll never have if you turn away from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I am not asking you to enjoy the struggle. I am asking you to embrace it. 
I'm not asking you to act like you enjoy the struggle. You know, you, you, you may have known Christians that way. Like, oh, I'm being persecuted. Yay. You know, don't do that. I got a bad diagnosis. Hallelujah. Don't do that. That's, that's just hypocrisy. It's fake. Don't do that. But I am asking you to embrace it. Because God is never going to leave you abandoned as you go through struggle. In fact, God says he's near to the brokenhearted. So turn to God, not away. Choose, to, choose not to become bitter for what you've lost, but strive to be grateful for what you have. And as you get down the road a bit, as you allow God to redeem your struggle, as you allow God to give your struggle meaning and purpose, as you allow God to comfort you, then God, over time, will use you to comfort others with the same comfort he's pouring into your life now. Because there are, there are, there are Corneliuses in your future that don't know the Lord, but you do. And they know the same struggle you're facing, and you can, you can impact them. One of the amazing things about the book of Acts, and, and we'll get to that over the next couple of weeks, read that, two chapters a day, and you'll, you'll catch up with us, is the stories of real people encountering real life and serving a real God. So to help with that, I want to I end the message by pointing out three specific people in the story we read. I've got to be a little creative to get there, but you'll see that. Um, because I think all of us are in one of their shoes right now. So I want you to identify where you are and then respond accordingly. First of all, there's Jerusalem Peter. You know, Peter's in Jerusalem. He's leading the church. He's, he's doing things for God. He's working for God. I'm sure he makes mistakes, but he's doing his best. He, he's being used of God to impact many lives. And he must have thought when the persecution came, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, he must have thought, this has got to be a mistake. God can't want this. God can't use this. Why wouldn't he just leave us here to do the good work we're doing? This is disrupting so many things. And there would have had to have been temptations in Peter's mind to turn away or to reject the struggle, but we don't see it. In fact, it seems like he embraces the struggle. He turns to God in the struggle. He clings to his faith in the midst of it. And because he clings to his faith in the midst of his struggle, God leads him to Lydda to meet Aeneas and to Joppa to meet Tabitha and eventually to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. And you and I's life are changed. Far beyond those three, we were changed. Because of Peter's obedience. Some of you are Jerusalem Peter. And you're facing struggle right now that in your mind cannot be of God. God can't have caused it. God can't use it. Why in the world is it happening? It's a mistake. God must be asleep or something. And that's what you know. God never sleeps or slumbers. He sees you. Just like he saw Peter. Just like he saw Cornelius. He sees you. And he sees your struggle. And he longs for you to embrace him in the struggle, to turn to him in the struggle. Sometimes we get closer to God because of struggle. This could be true for you. And if you're in the middle of struggle now, be reminded of Jerusalem, Peter. Second, I want you to think about Joppa, Peter. Joppa, Peter had, had gone from Jerusalem to Lydda, now to Joppa. He's having a very successful time with God. He's, he's being used of God to, to impact Tabitha and Aeneas and, and others. The word is spreading throughout the region. And he thinks, this is going to be great. I'll just set up shop here in this great religious center. We're surrounded by religious people. And God will, God will do great stuff here by the sea. And God said, I want you to leave the comfort zone of Joppa. And I want you to go to Caesar City. 
the den of iniquity. I want you to go to the, the worst of the worst, and not just to anybody in Caesar City. I want you to go to a Roman, a Roman soldier, a leader of Roman soldiers, and I want you to go and bring my good news to even them. And it's going to be scary, and it's going to be out of your comfort zone. It's going to cause you to, to change a lot of your misconceptions and preconceptions. But I'm going to use you to do it. And some of you are, are going to be Joppa Peter in the coming days. And God's going to cause you, call you rather, to step out of your comfort zone, out of your self-created bubble, and take some risks for the kingdom of God. And you may not know, you know, this side of heaven, you may not know all that God does with that. Peter didn't know about you. Peter didn't have a vision of Spring Hill, Tennessee. And yet, we're impacted because of what Peter did with Cornelius on that day. If God's calling you to take a risk, be Joppa Peter. Third, I want you to think about Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't a religious guy. He wasn't surrounded by religious people. He wasn't living in a religious place. He was living in the worst of the worst, and he was a leader of the worst of the worst, and yet God saw him because God looks past preconceptions. God looks past the surface level. God looks past the, the cover of the book into the center, and he sees people. He saw Cornelius. He sees you. And if you'll open yourself to him, he'll bring people to you. He may have brought you here today to hear about Jesus. Because the reality is God cared enough for Cornelius, not just to send Peter. That wasn't that big a deal. God cared enough about Cornelius to send Jesus, his son, to leave heaven, to leave comfort and perfection of heaven, to come to be living here in a poor city with poor parents and struggle constantly throughout his life and ultimately to be arrested and beaten and crucified and raised again from the dead because he cares so much about Cornelius and he cares so much about you. So if you feel like no one sees you, if you feel like no one understands, no one cares, it's a lie. It's not from God. God sees you. And maybe you're Cornelius. And maybe all of this today was all about you. Because God wants to find you. God wants to be in a relationship with you. Would you bite your head and let's, let's pray together. Would you take a moment to open yourself to God and say, God, are one of these men's story my story today? God, we open ourselves up before you and we ask that you'd be magnified in us that our life would be used by you to make a great impact in the world. Whether we find ourselves today like Peter in the midst of struggle, or whether we find ourselves like Peter in the midst of a risky choice to, to take a risk for you, or maybe we just felt unseen like Cornelius. God, may it be true that we know and believe that you see us, that you know our struggle, that you know our pain, and may we open ourselves as these guys did to be used and magnified so that you be magnified through us. God, we ask for that. We beg for you to use and name and purpose our struggle. We commit all that to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.